Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Glad you are here this morning. We have the opportunity to do, uh, at the end of our time together, to um, stop for a few moments and take communion with each other. And I think, um, I really do think our passage this morning really does set us up really well for that. And so it's been my prayer this week that um, not only do I lead us well, um, but that I allow God to work in my heart and to point me in the right direction this morning. So you can appreciate your prayers as we walk through this today. Um, I don't know, I'm, huh, I just made up a language there. You like that? That was pretty good. <laughs> Great, blue attire, and I'm not even 30 seconds in. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, have the privilege, I'll call it a privilege, because some of you I know it's, it's not a privilege, but I don't know how many of you have the privilege um, of flying often, getting on an airplane, picking your seat, if you're on Southwest, making yourself look as crazy as possible before the other person takes a seat next to you, right? You try to, we, we have a staff member who will remain unnamed that we have pictures of, and our last staff flight sat down and, and just make googly eyes at every passenger who came on the flight and threatened to sit next to him. Um, I didn't even want to sit next to him at that point, but the norm for those of us who get to be on an airplane often is to get comfortable, get seated, get your things stowed where you want your things stowed, and then ignore the flight attendant at all costs. Amen? I mean, come on. It's almost like a game now where they stand in front of you and they're like, okay, if you could just give us your attention, I just need it for about two minutes. I'm going to walk through the safety features of the airplane, right? And, and so, you know, you've got the, the two exits and one over there, and you've got the things come down, you snap it over your face, and, 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 and should your plane hit the water and you survive that just to begin with, the good news is we've got flotation devices so that you can bob around until the sharks get you. So, yay. Um, <laughs> if any of you are going on your first flight this week, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but we do, and it has, it's gotten to that place where actually our flight attendants try to make it as creative as possible to keep your attention. Please just give me your attention, pay careful attention. And that's what our author does this morning. But we better not treat it like we treat the flight attendants. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received the just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. For this reason, verse 1 says, we must pay attention all the more. For this reason. What is this reason? We went through all of chapter 1, and here's a, a unique thing about chapter 1 of Hebrews. There's not a single command in it. Nowhere are we told to do anything. Instead, the entire chapter, the author is simply unpacking the reality that Jesus is greater than anyone or anything you could possibly compare him to. 
He's the greater prophet. He's greater than the angels. And he's greater than any created being because he, in fact, is the creator. Not only is he the creator, he is the sustainer. You and I take our next breath in because Jesus sustains us in this moment. He's greater than any king that has ever been or any king that ever will be. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And so the author of Hebrews has gone through and painted that picture for us, explained to us the reality of Jesus being supreme, and then he starts chapter 2 by saying, now, pay attention to that. Pay attention. Be constantly alert. Remain on guard. Why? So you won't drift away. So you won't drift away. So what does that even mean? Let me, let me um, give you a picture of maybe some of us understand. It's think about the beach. You take your family to the beach. You get there bright and early. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of the bright and early kind. That's, that's us. We get there bright and early and you, you set your stuff up and the kids want to go play in the freezing cold water because they like the waves. Game on. As long as I don't have to do it, knock yourself out. I'm cool. That's great. So the kids run into the water, the waves are crashing, and you keep telling them, okay, you've got to keep your eyes here, know where we are on the beach, because anybody who's played in the waves for any length of time knows that there's this weird thing that occurs. I, I think it might have to do with the, 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 the spinning of the earth. I'm not sure. But as you play in the waves, you just gradually drift away from your spot. And if you're not paying attention, after some time, you look up and you have a whole new family. Meanwhile, mom and dad constantly, and this has been our experience when the kids were little, constantly on the beach just shouting out over, hey, come on back. Come on, come on back. Come on back. This is where we are. Look. Now, in most cases, the children weren't choosing to drift downstream. Some cases, they were. But, But in most cases, they just didn't intentionally choose to drift. However, because they didn't continue to lock their eyes on where they were supposed to be focused, they weren't intentionally choosing to not drift either. This is what our author is trying to tell us. You may not be trying to drift, but without paying attention to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, you are going to start to drift away from him. And you're going to start trying to replace what is irreplaceable with things that are lesser than him. And this isn't one of those fake overblown threats that mom gives you. Uh, and I, we've all heard it. Don't make that face or it'll stay that way. Right? This isn't one of those. If you don't pay careful attention to the supremacy of Christ, you will drift. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because we see much of that even in our own relationships Relationships over time, if we are not focused and paying attention to those relationships, over time, people can drift apart. It begins with a lack of enjoyment in your relationship. You started strong. There was great excitement about your relationship. But now, after some time, it takes work. It's a lot of hard work. And and it doesn't seem to be a lot of joy, so you lose some of the enjoyment, which leads to then a lack of communication. You stop talking about things that actually matter. You stop talking about necessary things. You pass each other in the hallway and one may ask the other, are you okay? And the response is, I'm fine. Interpretation, you are absolutely not fine and you're not allowed to ask me about it. From that, it leads to a lack of connection between people. In friendship, you see the text messages stop. The invites to go hang out stop. 
in marriage, intimacy wanes, and now you are living off the coals of a fire that used to be, but it's no longer. You stop trusting each other. You grow cynical, aggravated easily, callous. You no longer give each other the benefit of the doubt in your communication, in your conversations, and and what that has led to. All of those things lead up to the place where you drift apart. And the same can be true in our walk with Christ. We stop enjoying our relationship with him. We stop talking to him in prayer and listening to him in his word. Worship becomes a chore. It's begrudging. It's lacking the joy that it's supposed to have. You're just going through the the motions of religiosity instead of thinking and thriving in the passion of love for Jesus Christ. When you face challenges in your life, difficulties come. Instead of asking God to just draw near and trusting him in the process, you begin to accuse him. At worst, you begin to ask a familiar question. Did God really say? Which is the question that the serpent asked Eve in the garden. Pay careful attention to who Christ is or you will drift. So how big a deal is this? Well, the author for us kind of walks through and says, listen, the message that was spoken through angels was legally binding. What he's talking about there is the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 33, um, Galatians, um, some places, I think it's Acts 7 as well, talk about how uh, the angels were involved in the giving of the law from God to Moses. So in this moment, what he's, the author is saying is that this law was foundational and it was looked at with, with respect. It was held in esteem and people still chose to rebel against it. Even with the the, the punishment being visible for for most to see, that's what what he's talking about, how how every transgression, every disobedience received a just punishment. You read the Old Testament, and what you see repeatedly is is God bringing, he gives grace, he gives mercy, he's long-suffering, he is patient until he's not. And then he brings his justice, he brings his judgment, which is deserved according to the activity of the, of the people. You go to Exodus chapter 32, even the very moment that God is giving the law to Moses, as Moses comes down off the mountain because there is this horrible ruckus at the base of the mountain, he can't figure out what it is. It sounds like war down there. And when he comes down, he finds his people have gathered all the gold earrings from the women and all the gold accoutrements that might be found in the tents, and they've piled them together and melted it down and fashioned some sort of, of calf to worship. Now, have you ever thought about that? I mean, we hear it and we're like, how ridiculous, but why would you pick a calf? I mean, they're cute-ish, but, but why would you choose to worship a calf? That's how quickly you can drift. That's how extreme the drift can be. That somehow worshiping a fake gold calf seemed like the right thing to do. And as a result of their sinful disobedience, a plague came upon the people. You go to Leviticus 10, God has given clear instructions for what kind of fire to bring into the, the, the worship of God. And, and, and Nadab and Abihu decide they're going to bring the fire that they want to bring. And when they bring their own strange fire, it says God consumes them from heaven in his own flame. 
Numbers 14 tells us the people who continued to rebel against God in the wilderness as they approached the, the promised land were not allowed to go into the promised land. All of these things were punishments and judgments against the people which were just, which were fair. And here you have a group of people who live with the with the, the, the respect and the esteem of the law as God had given it. And they see day in and day out the just punishment being given to those who violate the law. And, and, and yet, it doesn't stop them from continuing to drift, does it? You get to the kings, which you see over and over again, are kings who, who may start really well, and then they slowly drift away. What it tells us is that we're prone to drift. It tells us that, that even with the very presence of the law and the reality of the punishment for not following the law in faithfulness and obedience, that, that, that people are still guilty. People remain sinners. People will continue to fail, and they are in desperate need of something greater. And so the author asks us, with that in mind, with that reality ever before us, the fact that we are prone to drift, we're prone to wander, we continue to fail, we continue to fall because we in and of ourselves are sinners and we're helpless to do anything about it ourselves, he then asks the question, so then how in the world can we escape if we neglect the salvation that's been given to us? We need to pay attention all the more by being reminded of the great salvation that Jesus has brought us. The salvation that Jesus has given us is our only hope. He gives a few descriptors about this salvation. In the middle of verse 3, it says, The salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. The salvation was announced by God because salvation is God's idea. Think, think about this. Here is Jesus himself sitting before Nicodemus, and he's laying out the message of salvation. He says one of the most popular verses, one of the things that we've heard more often than any other. We see it at football games. We see it at sporting events. We see it on the side of cars. We see it on the side of vans. And yet, I don't think we truly understand what John 3, 16 and 17 is actually saying. Because John 3, 16 and 17 is the very declaration of God's salvation for his people. As Jesus said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to come and just condemn the world, but he came to save the world through him. The salvation that is ours, the salvation that is great, was announced to us by God himself because it is God's idea. This is um, in Chicagoland. Um, they have this tradition with the Cubs uh, that when the Cubs win, they fly a flag. This, this big white flag with the letter W in, in bold blue font goes up. We're flying the flag, flying the W because we win. What is happening right here is Jesus is speaking and saying, listen, God loved the world this much. He gave his only son. What Jesus is doing is he's announcing the W. He's telling us that the victory has been won. This is the first gospel proclamation before the, uh, before the New Testament authors and even before the, the, the early church adopted the phrase, uh, uh, the word gospel to, 
to talk about the, the giving of the, the message of salvation. It was a very common term that was used in the, the Roman and the Greek world for, for military success. What would happen is the Roman or Greek armies would go out and fight a battle, and then when the battle was won, they would send a single messenger back to town to tell everybody, good news, we won! And that, that, was, that declaration was called the gospel. That's God himself announcing the W. This is God's heart, God's posture towards us. It's great love. The salvation not only was announced by God, but he then says, the same, uh, the end of verse 3, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This message of salvation was heard and witnessed by other people. Listen, God doesn't ask us to leave our brains at the door. There is historical eyewitnesses that have brought to us the message of Jesus Christ, the reality, historical reality of what he did. You, you, you read through Matthew, Luke, John, you, you've got the word of Peter, Paul, James, you've got all these people who were present during the ministry of Jesus Christ. They heard his teaching, and then as apostles, they saw him rise from the dead. You go to 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul lays out all of the eyewitnesses that got to see the resurrected Jesus Christ, and it tells us that over 500 people got to see his resurrected body and got to hear the, the teaching of Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead. History matters. We're saved because of what happened in history, and the truthfulness of that history was verified by eyewitnesses. But Frank... Of course, it's, it's like, it's like uh, your kids. So you're always going to take your kid's side, right? Parents, or sorry, teachers, you understand that. You bring in a parent for parent-teacher conferences. Eh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe most of us parents now at the point where we're like, we believe everything you say. We know the kid. Sorry. <laughs> but I think we have a bent towards, towards, towards defending them. And I, and I think sometimes what happens is they're like, well, of course the apostles, because the apostles said it, they've got to back up their lie, right? Well, hold on a second. Every single apostle saved probably one was martyred for their faith in horrific, horrible, traumatic ways. And yet every single one of them, upon facing their own death, refused to change their story. Why? Because they saw what was waiting for them. They knew exactly what Jesus had in store for them. Salvation was not only announced by God originally, it wasn't just heard and witnessed by others, but then it was confirmed by God in a way that, that only God can confirm it. In verse 4, at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. The fingerprints of God were all over the message of Jesus Christ. They authenticated everything that Jesus said. So as Jesus stood before the religious elite, as Jesus stood before those who were lost and in need of a shepherd that would lead them into God's presence, what he did as he was preaching the message of good news, the lame began to walk, the deaf began to hear, the blind suddenly had their sight, the leper was cleansed, the dead rose from the grave. And, and, and the, the tendency that we have is for us to gravitate towards those things, towards the miraculous. Like, look at men, and we make much of those miraculous gifts. And in fact, every time Jesus did one, he continued to point back to, that's not why I'm here. That's just for you who are having trouble believing me. 
I'm here to bring the truly miraculous to be. You know what the most miraculous thing in the entire history of Jesus' ministry was? It was that these, these horrible people were suddenly made holy. And it was evidenced by life change. So our author tells us, this salvation that was announced by God, that was witnessed by so many, that God authenticated, if you neglect it, how can you escape your own reality of us being a sinful human being? If you neglect it, if you don't pay careful attention to it, how will you escape? How do we neglect it? Let me, let me throw a couple of these at you. How do we neglect it? I think the most obvious one is we simply reject the gospel. And there are those sitting in this room right now who have rejected the message of salvation. And, and there's some in this room who, who aren't apologetic about that. There are some in this room who are somewhat secretive about that. There are some in this room you have no idea how in the world you ended up here other than mom woke you up way too early and promised something good and so you ended up at church. When you reject the message of God's salvation for you, the question is asked, how in the world are you going to escape his judgment? The message of salvation is not you need to give more. You need to, you need to be a better person. You need to stop all of those things that, well, you think are fun, but God says you shouldn't be doing. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is really simple. Here it is. You ready? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. No, I can't believe you'd say that about me. Hey, 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 wait, hold on. Although that's bad news, that's really good news because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you're not a sinner, <laughs> well, he didn't come for you. You're a sinner, and you can't do anything about your sin. You, you try this week to, to live according to God's law and not sin. Well, I got it covered, man. I know what the God's law is. Do you? Let me just, just go through a couple of the Ten Commandments. Just a couple. Can we agree the Ten Commandments, kind of a, the, the simplified version of God's entire law? So let's, let's just go through a couple, okay? You ready? Um, let's not bear false witness about anybody else. That means don't lie about another person. How many of you in here have never lied? Raise your hand. Good, because that was going to be your second lie. So good job. You caught yourself. Hold well on. <laughs> At least your second one. Well, that didn't start well. Oh, how about this one? Honor your father and mother. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. Um, don't murder. Don't murder. I know, you're all like, yes, except, except you got Pastor Tyler in the back. We got some questions about him. I don't know, but watch your back. No, um, <laughs> it's either Tyler or Trisha, so I went with Tyler. I thought it was safer. Um, except Jesus kind of ups the game a little bit for us, and he, gets, he says, let me tell you what the law is actually saying when he says don't murder. If you hate somebody, well, then you've already committed murder. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one. See, that's what, three, maybe four of the points of the law that I just went through? And I'm not even going deep. You're a sinner. God says you are separated from him because of your sin. And, and the reality is that Jesus Christ came to take your place and pay your punishment and rise from the dead 
proclaiming victory over sin and death forever if you trust him. If you decide to reject that offer of salvation from Jesus, then you have just made a choice. One day you are going to stand before the judge, the king of kings, and you are going to answer for your sin, and you've got two options. The first is, is glorious and wonderful and simple. It's, it's you stand before God, and, and when he asks him, so why should I let you into my heaven? As if he's going to ask us that, but that's a super simplified version. The answer simply is Jesus. Jesus said, I, could. I, I saw this illustration, and I thought it was interesting. You go to a theme park or an amusement park, and, and all these kids, you've got like four or five, six kids with you, and you've got this whole handful of tickets, and you get ready to go on the roller coaster, and it's like, okay, so we need tickets. And so you're just handing tickets to kids as they walk up the line to get to the roller coaster, and then this other kid comes up, and you're like, who are you? Oh, your son said that I could get a ticket from you. And you look, and your son looks at you, and you're like, all right, here's your ticket. When you stand before the holy judge, will you point to the son and say, he's the reason I'm here? Or are you going to try to go, on it, go at it on your own, with your own works? And I'm going to work harder, do my best, and then I'm going to provide that in front of God and say, this is why. Well, here's the problem. Your works will always fall short of the debt that you owe. That's first. Secondly, what an incredible insult to God that he would send his son Jesus Christ because it's the only thing that could possibly pay for your sin. And you're going to be like, no, no, I don't need your son. I went to church on Sunday. How are you going to escape? How are you going to escape if you reject the gospel? How are you going to escape if you elevate anything that is good into the God position? We're, we're, we're so good at turning things into idols. We replace God with even the things of God. That's the crazy part. We can replace God with church. We can replace God with, with family. We can tr replace God with, with work or, or money or sex or food or, or relationships. We can make all of those things one of our idols. Do, do, you, do you need to know if you have an idol? Okay, here you go. First, check your social media feed. What do you post about most often? That might be a sign of where your idol is. Second, check your bank accounts. Where does your money go? That could be a sign of, of where your idol is. Third, look at your calendar. What dominates your time? That's, that's probably a sign of where your idol is. And fourth, when you get quiet and just sit by yourself, where does your mind naturally wander to? See, those are evidences of where your idols may be. We, we take good things, don't we? And we can make them God things, and they can never bring the freedom that only Jesus Christ can bring. Get this. We even take, and this is going to sound ridiculous, stories of Jesus instead of Jesus and make them our idol. Let me explain what I mean. There are certain versions of Jesus that we really like, and other versions of Jesus we may not like as much. So I don't know about you, I really enjoy Christmas, Jesus. I get gifts, family, and hot cocoa. I'll take Christmas Jesus. But I'm not a big fan of the table flipping Jesus. Because that's kind of harsh. Hurts my feelings. I like my Jesus gentle and lowly. 
I like, I like my wine, so I enjoy the water into wine, Jesus. Right? It, just, it doesn't take you very long to find that in our culture today. And I'm afraid it doesn't take us very long to find that in our church today. We, we can neglect this great salvation when we warp who Jesus is and create him into a being that agrees with everything that we think. You just made yourself God, friend. We can neglect the salvation when we disregard our need for repentance or forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. Actually, there'll be two questions. When's the last time you fell on your face before Jesus and cried out and asked him to forgive you because you screwed up? When's the last time you fell on your face before your family and asked them to forgive you because you screwed up? But Frank, Jesus died and was raised for my sins, and so all of my sins, past, present, future, they're all forgiven. Yes, absolutely right, 100%. In fact, in that moment that you placed your trust in Jesus, he immediately made you righteous. It's not something that you earned. It's not something that you had to practice for. It's just something you're declared. You just said, that one's righteous, but... We remain in our broken flesh and we're still in need of regular and repeated repentance and confession of our sins. And when we confess our sins, God has promised that he'll forgive us our sins. See, the the message of 1 John is this. You say you don't have sin. See, I'm in Jesus. I I don't sin anymore. If you say you don't have sin, you are deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. It's a pretty poignant statement, isn't it? But instead, if you confess your sins because you've decided to be humble, he is faithful, he is righteous, he's going to forgive us our sins, and he's going to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We can neglect our salvation sometimes by having a misplaced hope. Our hope is not in perfection. Our hope is not in us having a day where we're like, yes, I nailed it today. Our hope is always in Christ. Here's the problem. When you think your hope is in having a great day and doing everything right and and never royally screwing it up today, if that's where your hope is, you're in deep, deep trouble because you're going to royally screw it up every time. In fact, our hope is not in those things. Here's your hope. You ready? You are a sinner. We established that fact. You are separated from God because of your sin. You are unable to do anything about that separation on your own, but God has loved you. God has chosen to show you grace. And so he provided for you a sacrifice, a substitute to die in your place. Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life. And Jesus Christ came and died in my place. And he rose again from the dead, just declaring victory over sin forever. That's where your hope comes from. Hope isn't found in being in the person that never fails. When you fail and fall on your face before Jesus and ask him to forgive you, what you are doing is doubling down on your hope. Because I know that Jesus is going to forgive me. I know that I'm a blood-bought child of God. So I can come boldly into his presence like, Dad, I messed it up again. I need Jesus. I need you to forgive me. I I need to celebrate the, the salvation that is mine. That's the great salvation that the author of Hebrews is telling us about. The salvation has changed for us, the way we view God. It's perfected the Old Testament. So so in the Old Testament, when God appeared to his people, he appeared in terrifying ways, right? 
When God appeared to Job, he appeared in a hurricane. When, when God appeared to his people on Mount Sinai, he, he appeared in the, in the form of this, this wilderness fire, a, a firestorm of lightning on top of the mountain. The message for God's people at that time was this. God is, 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 is inapproachable. If you try to come near to God, you will most certainly die. That's exactly what God told told Moses. If anybody sees me, if anybody sees my glory, they will surely die. But in Jesus Christ, our great salvation is that in the person of Jesus Christ, that hurricane became a human. That fire became flesh. Instead of of us trying to run into his presence, he most gladly came into our presence. Romans 11, you're you're listening to Paul talk for a little while about the gospel, about the beauty of salvation that can be ours. And he he gets to the end of his description, and and he can't help but celebrate the greatness of salvation. He says, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways, that God himself would show up to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that God would draw near to us. That brings us hope, that God showed up. You know what that is? That's his name, Emmanuel. That God showed up and invited you to come into his presence. That's, that's the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How in the world will we survive if we don't pay most careful attention to who he is and what he's done for us? The command to remember is one of the most often used commands in all of Scripture. God tells his people to remember over and over and over again. And there's a reason. Because we are a forgetful people. Today, as we come to the table, we have the opportunity to remember what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. As we get to take communion with each other. Communion is, it, it isn't a ritual. It's not a, it's not a liturgical thing we just do so we feel better. Communion is the reminder that God intended it to be, to remind us of our great salvation, to remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, to remind us of his broken body that was broken for your sins, to remind us of his shed blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we, we get to take advantage of the opportunity to, to remember that.